Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Brighton podcast. We exist to help people love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coabrighton.org. That's C-O-A-H-Brighton.org. Like you said, my name is Brandon. If I haven't got a chance to introduce myself to you yet, I'm sorry about that. I hope we get a chance to chat afterward. In particular, um, it's a huge compliment to anyone who teaches or preaches if you have comments, challenges, questions about what was taught and preached on. So if you have any, I hope you'll feel free to find me afterward and let me know how bad it was and stuff like that. We love that. Uh, especially, please save for the meal. And please, we'd love to talk about it and love to get to know more about you. Um, like I said, I'm on the, the pastor track here, so uh, there's good news. If, you, if you're new here and you don't really enjoy the sermon at all, you should come back so you could hear somebody else preach. Um, and if you are a Christian and you are not yet committed to the life of this church and become a, a member here, uh, if the sermon goes really poorly, it could be motivation to become a member because then you could have more influence to stopping me from progressing further in the track. And so, so how about that? If it goes poorly or well, win-win. You should get more committed to it. <clears throat> We're in a series right now called Life Together. Normally in our church, we, we, we believe that this is God's word. Um, and, and so we don't really care too much about our own opinions. We care about God's opinion. And so we try to minimize the chance for us to insert our opinion. We're not perfect at that by any means, but we try to minimize it by picking books of the Bible and trying to work through them and try to find the ideas that are there and, ex- and pull them out for us. And uh, we just finished a series through Genesis. Very soon, we'll be uh, picking the book of John, and we'll be going through it. And right now, we're just doing this little bridge series where it's more topical. We're picking these topics around the theme of life together, uh, focusing on those together. And right now, uh, this and the next three will be our core values. We're doing the gospel, community, and mission. So this morning is the gospel. And even though we have a topic we've picked, uh, again, we want to try to pick a passage of Scripture. If we can't find a passage of Scripture where the idea is the topic, then that was a bad topic to pick, and we ought not to have done so. We have Romans 1 through, well, I'm guessing 6. We'll see how far we make it. Um, maybe if I go super fast, we'll just keep on plowing ahead. But um, that's the passage we'll be in today. If you um, have not, because we normally do put the passage up there. You saw the scriptures that we read on the, the screen, and we like to just relax and do that. We will be reading lots of different passages in Romans. So it would benefit you to, they won't all be on the screen, to open up uh, from the Bibles there or on your phone, find a copy of God's Word. Uh, I think it will, will help you as we go through it. The gospel. The gospel is so, so important it is so good. Friends, it is the center of Christianity. And if Christianity is true, it is therefore the center of the universe. It is the center of life. Right? It is Christianity's answer to two fundamental questions that everyone must answer. Okay? If you have a, all of you have worldviews, a way in which you see and interpret the world, so does everyone else who has ever existed. Right? We often talk about religion or philosophy, but the, a really helpful word is your worldview. How do you answer a handful of fundamental questions? Right? Where did everything come from? Do humans have a special place in the universe? What are we supposed to be doing here while we are here? What happens after we die? And two of the most important, the answers to which, Christianity's answers to which are the reason why I'm a Christian in the first place. They are so true. They ring so true for me. As the answer is two questions. One, what 
is wrong with the world? And two, what's the solution? And I have been blessed to be able to study many, many ideas and many philosophies, many religions, and I have found that we agree on nothing, nothing, except for one thing. Something's wrong. There is a problem. Things are not as they should be. I have yet to meet someone who does not agree with that. Now, the moment you follow up and say, well, what is it? (laughs) What is the problem? What is wrong? Now we disagree. And as we go through the gospel, we will get to see Christianity's answer to these two questions. They are cosmically important, and they are very personally and individually important to all of us. And I love the gospel. One, because it is both so rich and deep, and is also so simple. We, we, say, we try to summarize it every Sunday. Every Sunday, we try to summarize the gospel. The gospel can be very simple. It is that we were created to know and enjoy God, but instead we enjoyed and sought to know everything except for God, and that creates a barrier between us and him, and there are major consequences to that. God dealt with those consequences. He dealt with those consequences himself by coming Jesus, living the life we should have, died the death we deserve to, rising again from the dead, proving that the check cleared the bank. And by putting our faith in him, trusting, depending on him, and turning away from sin, we can live forever with him. Okay? You said it in a few sentences. You could say even shorter than that, maybe leaving this or that out. I love it. Gospel can be summarized very briefly. And then there's Romans. If you're not familiar with the book of Romans, it is the cliff notes to the Bible, okay? Uh, a very influential pastor in mine and Claire's life, especially Claire's, uh, Joel Brooks in, in Birmingham, I remember him saying once that he was seeking, he only had one uh, daughter at the time, and he said, I am seeking to give her the greatest education possible. I want her to be as smart as I possibly can for one reason so that maybe one day she can understand the book of Romans. That was such a good line. That was such a good line. So good, I remember it years later and using a sermon on it, right? And friends, here we're going to try. Romans 1 through 6 does not tell you everything there is to know about the gospel. The Bible is a big book, and it words it lots of glorious ways. That light and darkness metaphor that Kyle is using, it's a great one, not dominant in Romans. And there's lots of other avenues, aspects, implications that we're not going to get to. And I'm not going to begin to scratch the surface of these incredible chapters. But hopefully, if you'll stick with me, you will see the basic flow of thought through these six chapters and the most important book that's maybe ever been written. Okay? So, that's introduction. Romans 1. Verse 1, what we read, let's, uh, look at it with again with me. Well, you read this introduction at the beginning of chapter 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Set apart for the gospel. Now, he's not about to give you a definition of the gospel, but he is going to describe important aspects of it. These are enablers. These are things that must be true for there to be a gospel and various implications of it. He promised it beforehand. This was a plan through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son. This is about God's son. If Jesus is not God's son, there is no gospel. He was descended from David according to the flesh. Both Mary and Joseph of the tribe of Judah, the same tribe of David, 
Jesus is the king. He is the promised king from the book of Samuel. And he was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is actually not dominant in these chapters. It's mentioned in the last verse of chapter four, but it is essential. And that's why one reason Paul starts with it right here at the start of chapter one. The resurrection of the dead is that confirmation ephel from that bank transaction that it cleared. It went through. It's on the ledger. The resurrection is essential and it is part of the gospel. And through whom? Jesus Christ, through him, we have received grace to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. And so now, friends, we are going to get to go through Romans and we're going to see some explanations of that. Grace. What do you mean grace? Obedience of faith for the sake of his name all the nations. So here we go. Anyone who knows the book of Romans and understands it correctly know that the springboard for the rest of the book is verses 16 and 17. Romans 16 and 17 are the theme of the book of Romans. This is a letter written to Rome. People would tell you this was um, like a missionary support letter, but it's always, it feels very trite when people describe it that way. Yes, that is true. At the end of the book of Romans, Paul mentions that. He's hoping to visit them. He's hoping to get support as he goes on to Spain to take the gospel there. So that is true, but it is so much more than that. Um, He doesn't know the Romans. He has not met these people in person. He did not plant this church. We, We found out in Acts 2 that there were people, visitors from Rome at Pentecost at the initial giving of the Holy Spirit and the speaking in tongues thing in Acts 2. Likely, maybe the church was planted from people who were there. But Paul is writing this letter and he's putting his, here's my doctrine, here's my theology, here is my gospel message that I'm asking for you to support. I'm asking you to benefit from it. This is for you to benefit from. And I'm asking you to see, I want you to buy in to the message I want to bring to you and to Spain. And here are these lines. He says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God's salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Gentile. It's verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And so now, starting at this point throughout Romans, especially the first 11 chapters, there's these assumed questions. Sometimes he states the question and sometimes it's assumed he's challenging. It's the, one of the most linear books uh, in, in the, all of the Bible in terms of a flow of thought that continues. Yeah, he digresses at times, but he'll come back and he flows through. And here's the question. Here's the first question. The power of God is salvation to everyone who believes. Salvation from what? From what do I need saved? What is the problem? Verse 18, for the wrath of God. For the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. That is the answer to the question. And for now two chapters until about midway through chapter three, we will be... uh, 
explaining what that, that means, like under, unpacking this question. Salvation from what? We have the initial answer in verse 18, the wrath of God. Now, I said we're going to try to go through chapter 6. Uh, we will spend, the plan is, most of our time on chapter 1 and chapter 3. So when we finish chapter 1, don't multiply by 6 and panic uh, that that's how long this is going to go. Okay? Romans 1.18 says, The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Remember, when you read truth, do not think primarily or exclusively propositional phrases. There is a God. Christianity is true. Jesus is the Son of God. People suppress facts, and now there's wrath on them. No, not far from merely. The truth is a person. I am the truth, Jesus says. Okay? And it says, what can be known about God is plain to them. Again, you've heard it, right? When people say, oh, you know her, like biblically you knew her, right? That's a phrase, an expression that a lot of people use, at least in the States. They're talking about intimacy, sexual intimacy, to say you biblically knew someone, because they use it in the Old Testament. He went into her, he knew her, and she conceived, right? When the Bible talks about knowledge, it's usually talking about something very relational, personal. When it says he foreknew you in other places in Scripture, it's not just God had facts in his brain. He loved you. He had already placed his affection on you. He knew you for what can be known about God. For what can be known about God is suppressed. It is plain. It is offered. It is suppressed. But here are the questions, guys. So the wrath is for those things. Those are primers, but I'm going to jump to the clearest explanation here in Romans 1. It is the most precise place in the scriptures I know on what is wrath and why. The Bible does not always speak with the same amount of precision, okay? It's a normal book. It uses normal communication in different places. It approximates and stuff. Here in Romans, it is quite precise, and you're going to see it in the verses. If you've got it open in front of you, look at verse 22. You're going to see a pattern. It's going to say three times that humans exchange something and then it's going to say, God gave them up to something. This is repeated three times. So I'm just going to, we're not going to read all of it, right? I'm going to read quickly. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, humans claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. Verse 25, see that that's the first time. Second time, verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Third time, verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God. See, that's a synonym for exchange. They acknowledge, they did not acknowledge God. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. That's the pattern, guys. And in that we see, we see the Bible's clearest answer to 
two things. One, why do humans deserve warrant wrath? And secondly, what is wrath? This is not a popular topic, right? For all kinds of reasons, this is not popular. Not least of which is how many Christians have talked about this in very, you know, maybe manipulative or clumsy ways. God protected me from doing so this morning. We want to see what this says. We need to understand what these things mean to understand the gospel, the flow of thought in the book of Romans. It is the theme. The gospel is the power of God from salvation for the wrath of God is on us. Why? What does this mean? Now, you've got to see, it does not mean, we, we, we typically only think in terms of like, when you hear about religion and judgment or heaven, we think, well, you just didn't, you didn't know the right rules. You didn't have the right facts. You didn't know to pray five times a day. You didn't know to take communion. If only you had the right religion, then you wouldn't have wrath on you. Because you had the wrong religion, you have wrath on you. That is not a good understanding of what is being said here at all. It's not being said here. And even the more common one, which this, again, this is, is true insofar as it goes. Like, okay, I sinned. I disobeyed God. Therefore, there's guilt on me. That is, that is true. That is true. The Bible talks that way a lot. But in Romans, that's not what it just said. There's, there's, a, layer, there's a layer even one step deeper than that. And it comes from understanding what is glory. Did you read it? That, I like the, the way it says it in verse 26, uh, 25, I think is the most plain. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and serve the creature rather than creator. What is worship? What is glory? What does it mean to glorify? Guys, what, when it talks about God's glory or the glory of anything, that is just what makes him him. That is what makes it it. It's the it's attributes, okay? It's the definition, the being, the ontology. And to glorify is to see that thing for what it is in truth, in actuality, and to appreciate, to enjoy, to like it. That is this foundational exchange. We were made to glorify God. He has glory. He made us uniquely in his image to be able to perceive it in a way nothing else in creation can. And out of that worship, but instead of doing so, we have picked other things, created things, and we see their glory. And we long for those things. And we appreciate those way more than God. That is the just desserts. The person who helped me see this better than any other, well, there's like three of them, but one of which was C.S. Lewis. He wrote a book called Reflections on the Psalms. And he has one chapter on a word about praising. And he talks about before he was a Christian, how frustrating it was to listen to Christians and then to read in the Psalms themselves like them giving praise to God. Like, who's this God who says, worship me, worship me. You're going to be in trouble if you don't worship me. My wrath will be on you if you don't worship me. Like, that sounds pretty vain, right? And we don't like people like that, and we sure as heck don't like people who then gratify that desire. But he says the sense in which 
a picture deserves or demands admiration is rather this, that admiration is the correct, adequate, appropriate response to it, that if paid, admiration will not be thrown away, and that if we do not admire, we shall be stupid, insensible, and great losers. We shall have missed something. Right? Think about the person, think about the thing you love in life, right? That steak or that cake or that sport. And people would just go, I don't get it. And you're like, well, you were missing out. You were missing out. I wish you had the taste buds to know how good that wine is. You're missing out when you don't see it. Guys, how much more than God? The praise not merely expresses, but it completes the enjoyment when the overflow of worship The worship starts right here. The words are just the response, the overflow of being alive. And the worthier the object is, the more intense the delight is. Guys, and we say, okay, well, God, so, okay, God is enjoyable, but like you don't have punishment on you because you don't appreciate that wine, right? But it's twofold. It is the deservedness of it. And it's that which is, it's the source of all goodness. We'll get back to how do we, I hope we'll get back to how do we enjoy things in this life that, that, that it's appropriate to do, right? And, and when you were wrong if we don't enjoy them in a way, but not in the same sense. Here's again, Lewis helps me out here. To see what this doctrine means, we must suppose ourselves to be perfect in perfect love with God drunk with, drowned in, dissolved by that delight, which far from remaining pent up within ourselves as incommunicable, hence hardly tolerable bliss, it flows out from us incessantly, again, in effortless and perfect expression. Our joy, no more separable from the praise in which it liberates and utters itself than the brightness Amir receives is separable from the brightness it sheds. The Scotch Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify him. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. That is the definition of worship or glorify, is to enjoy. That's what we were made for. It's what he deserves and it's what we need and want, okay? So still, still then maybe there's some hesitations like, okay, so we just miss out, right? We just miss out on this good thing. What, and then we look at what wrath is. Fundamentally, maybe we'll unpack it even more, right? These are inseparable. The exchange is the why. Instead of glorifying God, we glorify Creation, supremely self. Why? But the what, what is it? That's the, God gave them up. He gave them up to, and I'm going to be very brief. He gave them up to sin. Just backwards from how we typically think. We normally think we sin, therefore we get wrath. Bible talks that way. It does. I think there's this foundational way. We, we're under wrath, so we sin. These are, this is hard to talk about. If you're new here, uh, it's not always this weighty and heavy. 
But this is part of the gospel, understanding what we are saved from. There's a popular definition of, of hell, which uh, is hell is, is where God is not. And normally when I bring up saying like you hear it say, Christians say, popular say, I normally come back and I criticize it. That's just what you'll hear me do a lot for different ways. Uh, this, is a, this is a pretty good definition. It doesn't say everything it can say. But that's what God is saying here. God is saying, I made you to know and enjoy me. And when you try to, I don't know, put sawdust in the car, it destroys it. And that is what you are doing when you try to satisfy yourself and pursue things fundamentally harder than you pursue me. And the consequences of that, it's both logical and natural consequences. It's a fine, like go your own way. If you don't want me, you won't get me. That is the definition, not everything, but that's the best definition of wrath that I know the Bible gives in Romans with the least symbolism, right? There's all kinds of other descriptions. With the least symbolism, you hear Romans, God saying, uh, C.S. Lewis has this quote, uh, which I think summarizes this well. He says, at the end, of the end of the day, there'll only be two kinds of people. There'll be those who say to God, your will be done. And there will be those to whom God says, your will be done. Okay. We, what it means to be under wrath is to be in the place where, where God says, you don't want me. Go. Fine. And maybe for some people, they go, well, that doesn't sound so bad. It doesn't sound so bad. But that's, that's just a misunderstanding of what God is. It's like saying, like, okay, you don't get the sun anymore. And you go, okay, well, that's not so bad. I'll just like make a fire. You, you don't understand what the sun is then. Okay. There will be no other source of light. There will be no other source of heat. So what's the difference between sin and wrath? Like wrath is sin with, with no grace, with all grace removed, no more common grace. Because we did not, we do not see what God has offered, what is offered in God, and we enjoy everything else. It's such an insult. If you can imagine the insult to the, the chefs and the servers at Abe and Louie's, the steak place downtown. If I said, I, I don't say big deal is, I really like Taco Bell. I prefer Taco Bell. And I love Taco Bell. Love it. And that would be such an insult. And that's what we're doing every day. I just love that series on Netflix. All the while, there is God. There is God. All right, that's most of our time. Romans chapter two says, well, so should I just be religious then? Be religious? No, both Romans one through Romans, halfway through Romans three is saved from what? What do I need to be saved from? Romans one gives this really foundational response and there's a little bit of an emphasis you could say on the Gentile or the, the more, clat, what we normally think of as sin, sex, drugs, rock and roll. There's a, there's a hint of an emphasis there. Romans 2 has a hint of emphasis on, oh, you think because you go to church, you're saved? 
that you have less to be worried about? Religion does not save. Following the rules does not save. Having special knowledge does not save. One example, guys, uh, verse 28, chapter 228, he says, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit. His praise is not from man, but from God. You put that in modern vernacular, right? Okay, so you have traditional family values and you are always fighting for freedom of conscience. Oh, great. You're always marching on the rallies and fighting for equality. It does not save. Those might be two extremely important things that are implications of what God calls us to in this life, but it is not the root. It's not the foundation. We are called to know and enjoy him. And if we do not, then we are great losers. This is how Lewis says it again. He says, God is that object to admire, which is simply to be awake, to have entered the real world, and not to appreciate it is to have lost the greatest experience, and in the end, to have lost all. As you get into Romans 3, Paul makes sure you haven't missed it. I love the book of Romans because the way you like, you go, am I reading this right? Because this seems crazy. And then they like, they answer it. Like the way it keeps leaning in or the way it asks the exact same question I'm asking, it confirms, yeah, you're reading it right. And Paul goes through, I can't remember how many quotes he has here from the Old Testament. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned to decide. Together they have become worthless. The venom of ass was on their list. It, it is, it's pretty brutal. And it's just like, like you're just getting beat up and pulled And like, I needed this so bad when I was in high school and not a Christian and wondering what was wrong with the world. I needed a revelation from without to help me see myself. Jesus kept on talking in ways that's like, Jesus, this is, I'm not, I mean, I know I'm not perfect, but is it that bad? And he kept on saying, yes, yeah, the problem is not what goes into your mouth, that you don't have the right rules and do the right things. The problem is not that you don't go to church. The problem is what comes out of your mouth because what comes out of your mouth comes from your heart. Your, something is wrong with your heart, Jesus is telling me. And I needed that. So jumping way ahead. For those, um, just a parenthesis, for those of you who, who are familiar at all with the, the concept of the new perspective on Paul, um, I know that won't be many of you, but if you're not wondering, how, how do I know that that is or is not the right way to read the New Testament? I hope you'll find me at lunch and we can talk about that. We get to halfway through Romans 3 and we have this summary. Please look at it if it's open, guys. Romans 3, verse 19. So we know, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified before God. It's the most scathing section of whole scripture on humanity in the position we're in. And it is followed by the most glorious paragraph that has ever been written. And you'll hear Christians say over and over, the greatest word. Does anybody know what the greatest word in the Bible is? But... But we read it at the start. Val read it from Ephesians 2. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive together with him. 
Titus 3 says, same thing. We uh, were lovers, haters of each other, deceitful, disobedient. But when the loving kindness of the Lord our God appeared, he saved us. Every mouth is stopped. The whole world is accountable before God. By works of the law, no one will be justified. Verse 21, please look at it with me. But now, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets, they bore witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ to everyone who believes. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All right, Paul, we get it. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. You, the law, the prophets, the rules, religion, it could not save. It did not save, but it doesn't have to. God has saved. How has he done it? He's done it through Christ. And it gives us at least three ideas here about how he has done it. It says he has propitiated. That is a, you just need to practice saying that. It's a great word to know. Propitiated. He propitiated. He is the wrath removing substitute by bearing the wrath in our place. That's the definition. It's both a what and a how. The what is he removes the wrath that's on humans. How? By bearing the wrath in our place. We just saw there's this great exchange. We, instead of glorifying God, we glorify creation. Now there's this other great exchange. Instead of wrath being on us, it's on Christ. Wrath is the giving over to your sin. Go, have it. Second Corinthians 5 says that God made him who knew no sin to be sin, to be it. So then in him we might be the, have the righteousness of God. He stands in our place and he takes that for us so that we're justified. We're justified. Justified is, it's a legal term. It's a legal idea. There is this, we talk about, oh, I sinned, so I'm guilty. Yeah, that's there. We are not innocent. We are not righteous. We don't have righteousness. Guess who does? Jesus Christ has it. Our bank account is empty. It's negative. We're in debt we can never pay. Jesus lived the life we should have. He has plenty and he pays our debt for us. He justifies, he gives us his righteousness. So that's that great exchange. He gets our sin and wrath. We get his righteousness. And when God looks on us, he sees us as if we had not sinned. Redemption, that's a very similar word. Redeemed normally means like you're in slavery. You are a bondservant because of your debts. You're having, you're enslaved someone. You can't go work elsewhere, right? That's the idea. And when you're redeemed, someone writes the check and sets you free. And now you are free to leave. Those are the three ideas here. The, the unifying word is grace. You, it's such a great word and you will find it in no other religion. Not like this unmerited favor. That's a common definition you hear, and it is a good one. Unmer you don't deserve this. We don't deserve God. 
No one can boast. If we get God, it's because of grace, right? We like we say, well, we think of grace. Most people, including plenty of people sitting in churches all around the world, they think, oh, I had a test to take and, you know, I needed a, a 60 to pass and I made a, a 38, but thank God the professor is gracious and he scales. And now I get... You know, whatever, 70, and I, I passed. Thank you, God, for being merciful. No, that is not what's described here. That's not the type of grace we're talking about. The type of grace we're talking about is, is you didn't show up for the test. And in fact, you wrote an email to the professor telling them where they could stick that test. And that professor sits down, piece of paper, and they take that test. And then they pull out the red pen and they grade it 100. And then they write your name on it. That is grace. That's the grace we're talking about here, friends. That is the God we're talking about and what he is offering to all of us. This is received through faith. Oh my goodness, I would love to talk for days on faith. What is faith? It is so important. Don't Christians stop saying faith has something to do with lack of proof or lack of evidence. Stop talking that way. I wish we could go for longer. Faith is the best synonym we have in English is dependence. Faith is you're saved by faith means you aren't saved by you. You get to enjoy. You get to receive. You just rely trust in someone else, what someone else has done for you. That's the good news that he's done it for you. Man, y'all are missing out. Good stuff here in Romans. One comment on chapter four. Chapter four is, is this a new idea? No, it's not a new idea. It's not the new plan. This was always the plan. Uh, Abraham believed God. It was counted him as righteousness. That's a quote from Genesis 15. That happens before he's circumcised. It happens before he's willing to obey God and offering up Isaac. It's not a new plan. Chapter five, one comment. There is definitely no, none of these questions summarize the entire chapters, right? I'm just trying to get a main theme. Chapter five, there's no one question that summarizes chapter five at all. I'm picking one because I want to highlight the contrast with chapter one. How, why is this not just news? Why is it good news? It's because now you get God. Let's, let's read, let's read um, chapter five, verse, mm, start in, I don't know, since. Is it 16? Yes. <laughs> Verse 19. Nope. You get what you pay for, friends. There we go. Such good news, guys, that God did all that while we were still sinners. He died for us. Verse 9. Track with me. Listen to the more than, the more than. Therefore, now that we've been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, 
shall we be saved by his life. More than that, what could be more than that? What on earth could be more than that? We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Guys, this is where we'll end. We rejoice in God. The great exchange where we have now worshiped creation instead of the creator, now that we have been reconciled. Peace, harmony, we can rejoice in God. Not as, not as gifts mainly. The gifts are there too. And they are pointers and they are things that we can give thanks for. But the gifts of self-esteem, a clear conscience, those are not the, the bottom. They're not the foundation. The foundation is you get God. You get him. And if that, if that doesn't sound great to you, like it didn't to me, I'd been a professing Christian for maybe two years. When I read in a book, it said, would you still want to go to heaven if you found out Jesus wasn't going to be there? And I thought, Jesus' presence or lack thereof in heaven doesn't really change my attitude towards heaven. I must be missing something. That seems like a bad thing. It feels like I should care. It feels like I should be excited. It feels like I should want him, not just not hell. And if that's you this morning, good news, friends. Good news. You God is merciful and patient with us. He knows how much help we need. These aren't instant transformations. So non-Christians, please pursue, ask, challenge. Keep pressing in here with us. Christians, if this has formed you that the good news is God, and I haven't seen how my, my sin and the wrath that I'm under, like I just, yeah, I'm not that concerned about that. If that's all that wrath is, is not getting God. It's a chance to spend time in prayer now on your knees and later pursue him, seek him, wrestle with him. God, what am I missing? Why am I not excited about you? Why am I excited about everything else except for you? And let him show you what he's done. Let him show you how good he is. You should be excited about me because look, look at who I am in Jesus. Look at what I did on Calvary. Look at my help to you now. I brought you to this, this building with these people, with this not even a pastor yet guy talking and, he, and he, he's calling you to, to think about something maybe you haven't even considered. He's merciful to you. Think about these things now as we pray. Um, and as we, we move into worship together, you do not have to leave from here. Find someone and talk to them out in here. Let me pray together.